Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. My name is Romina, and I'm here with co-host Adrian Boy. And today we're talking with Steve... Uh, how do you say your last name? <laughs> it's Bukema. <laughs> there you go. And who are you? You're a master's student in psychology. <laughs> who goes there? Who, who am I? Um, I am just wrapping up my second year of my master's degree, my master of science degree. I work with patients in disorders of consciousness. Cool. What do you, who are these people? What are disorders of consciousness? Can you tell us more? Absolutely. So patients in disorders of consciousness uh, are sort of categorically divided up into either comatose individuals, vegetative state patients, and minimally conscious patients. Now, the way these patients get divided into these categories is based on two components, arousal and wakefulness. So clinicians typically, they'll use a a behavioral assessment um, to see to what degree these patients are aware. Uh, At the lowest level, we have our comatose patients who are said to have no arousal and no wakefulness. Um, And then at the next level, we have our vegetative state patients who uh, they'll respond to some startle uh, effects. So if you were to snap your finger on either side of their head, they might respond to that. Uh, They might occasionally look around or track some objects. But uh, according to their diagnosis, they are, they're not aware. And then one step up from that are our minimally conscious patients who have fluctuating levels of awareness. And then these vegetative state and minimally conscious state patients, uh, they have uh, sleep and wake cycles, unlike comatose individuals. So when you say vegetative state patients um, don't have awareness, what does that mean? Because if they can track things with their eyes or like respond to stimuli being snapped on either side, wouldn't you wouldn't you call that being aware? Uh, so you might think so initially, but actually these uh, these startle responses are very perceptual and they're not actually cognitive. So it's very unlikely that they're indicative of conscious awareness. Uh, They're very low level, even responding to your own name, like this cocktail party effect in a crowded room. uh, It's very low level, and it's it's not uh, considered as evidence for consciousness. So it's more of like an automatic process rather than a higher level cognitive process. That's right. But but because it is still similar to how healthy individuals respond, uh, it is it's considered uh, that these patients are better off as a result of having retained these uh, specific abilities. So why do uh, vegetative state um, patients, um, they have the sleep-wake cycle, but um, the uh, comatose patients, they don't? Mm, that is a good question. I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. Uh, I, I think it really depends on the type of injury. So these patients can become patients for a variety of different reasons. Uh, They can suffer internal damage to their brain, maybe as a result of lack of oxygen to the brain, or uh, some patients have external brain damage, perhaps as a result of a a car accident. Uh, And it's likely that the, the cause of their injury might play a role 
and whether or not they get subdivided into comatose or vegetative state or minimally conscious. Um, and then obviously the severity of the injury uh, is going to play a role in, in what aspects of, of being a healthy individual are retained. So these patients with, um, these comatose patients are vegetative or minimally conscious. Um, what is their general prognosis or outcome? Like, is it more likely that someone who's minimally conscious will um, gain awareness at a certain point? Do you guys know anything about that? Yeah, so, so the answer to that question is unfortunately a sad one. Uh, I think Hollywood would, um, the statistics for recovery in movies and in television is upwards of 82 percent uh, because it's fashionable to watch something with a happy ending. But the truth is, is that uh, patients very rarely recover. And in fact, in the research we do, recovery typically does not mean that you're going to be walking and talking and living your life again. Recovery typically means that you're going to progress perhaps from a coma into a vegetative state, or you'll progress from a vegetative state into a minimally conscious state, which is good. It's, it's, definitely, um, it, it's definitely a better outcome. But uh, recovery in terms of gaining all of your healthy abilities back and being able to live your life the way you once did is extraordinarily rare. If I may ask, uh, what's the difference between a coma and a vegetative state? So comatose individuals, uh, as diagnosed by a behavioral scale, are not awake, not aware, have low to no level of arousal. So most people are are familiar with comatose individuals uh, through movies or television. Uh, the patient is essentially just lying there uh, and hooked up to various life support devices. Whereas a vegetative state patient, um, I suppose the best way to describe them is they've sort of regressed into this infantile state where they, they have sleep and wake cycles like healthy people do. Uh, they, they make noises, uh, they can laugh, and they can cry sometimes, although not necessarily to anything, anything specific. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, the, the main, the main difference is, is that higher level of arousal. Okay. So what was it like working with, um, these patients for the first time? Was this just at the start of your master's program you started working with these patients? Uh, yeah. So I've been involved with the research, uh, in disorders of consciousness for, upwards of four years now, I think, but I only started getting a lot of, uh, a lot of exposure to patients when I started my master's. And at first, it wasn't an easy thing to see, uh, and I think that would be the same for anyone. Uh, to, to see a vegetative state patient for the first time is, is difficult. You're not really sure how to interact with them. But the obvious answer is that you're supposed to just interact with them like you would with anybody. Uh, and treat them like a healthy individual. Um, you just have to be a little bit more sensitive. With, with healthy individuals, uh, we will uh, just toss our EEG equipment on top of their scalps in order to take our measurements. Um, but with patients, you, you sort of feel this necessity to be more fragile uh, 
in in sort of the actions you do because because you don't know a, he- a healthy individual can tell you when when maybe you're being a little bit too rough or when something is itching them or when something's uncomfortable uh, but a vegetative state patient isn't capable of, of those same things I'm really curious about the ethics involved for these patients who um, do they have like a family member who will sign off on like yes they can be part of your research or yeah yeah so because these patients are by their very nature non-communicative they uh, they're they have a caregiver who signs off on these types of things and the way that we gain access to these patients is through through the media and then also through a website of ours where relatives and caregivers can reach out to us because people really just want to know more about the condition that their relative is in. That's so interesting. So um, you're, you're doing research on these patients. What are some of the, the results or findings that you've come across in your master's program? And, uh, and, and how, how did you use the EG, EG to, uh, to find these sorts of things? Yeah, so there's a variety of different research, really exciting research going on in our lab. Uh, what I focus on specifically is language. Uh, language is really interesting because language is is one of the the things that makes humans uniquely human. It's it's sort of this device that uh, allows us to communicate about our awareness and about our consciousness with one another. Um, and so we can use uh, electroencephalography which is essentially just this swim cap of electrodes that we put on top of someone's scalp to measure uh, the electrical fluctuations going on in someone's brain. And from these electrical fluctuations, we can uh, observe different things going on in the brain in relation to language. And what I specifically look at is uh, semantic processing, so sort of conceptualization of words, uh, these higher order uh, language mechanisms at play when we hear sentences, when we hear word pairs, and what happens when we hear violations to those sentences or word pairs. Um, so the brain does this very specific thing when presented with the man drove to work in his car versus the man drove to work in his potato. Uh, <laughs> sort of a, a statistical machine, uh, a prediction error machine that uh, it, it, helps, it helps you to figure out when two words or, or when a terminal word of a sentence is likely to be there or, or when uh, it's, it's very unlikely that those two words or that sentence actually makes sense, given the, the words it's surrounded by. That's so neat. So this EEG really is, um, it's like a deeper level of uh, measuring how conscious these patients are, because when you're talking about uh, their diagnosis, you're doing um, really simple tests like a startle response. But with this advanced technology, you can see even more deeply um, what's happening in the brain, and it's probably more a fine-tuned um, diagnostic device. Absolutely. So it's no secret in our lab that the clinical behavioral assessment of these patients to give them a diagnosis is massively flawed. Uh, there's been misdiagnosis rates as high as 53%, uh, 43%, sorry, 
with, uh, with just assessing the behavior that these patients do or do not have. And so neuroimaging is, is definitely needed in order to aid uh, the diagnostic criteria for these patients. Yeah. What are some of the problems with mis- misdiagnosing these patients? So uh, one of the main problems is the diagnosis prescribes that a patient is not aware. When some of the research that my lab has conducted in the past and, and some of the research that makes my lab as famous as it is today has used neuroimaging to show that that's actually not always the case. So one of the research studies that we're most well-known for has used functional magnetic resonance imaging to communicate with a patient who, by the clinical diagnosis, shouldn't be able to communicate. Yeah, it, it, um, I'm definitely reminded of the book Ghost Boy, and, uh, uh, yeah. where a child got a meningitis uh, that a meningitis that basically they thought he was in a vegetative state. What it turned out is that he was actually uh, I don't know if this is a medical term the term locked in. Yes, where yes. He was basically yeah. completely paralyzed, but his mind was completely functional. Mm-hmm. And for about a decade, they thought he was basically uh, in a vegetative state, but he was probably and he kind of willed his way back into movement and with your type of treatment you could obviously you could catch that and at least give them the bedside manner they deserve exactly yeah so so locked in patients are really interesting because apart from their inability to uh, conduct motor movements they are exactly the same as healthy individuals in terms of conscious awareness locked in individuals have uh, suffered a brainstem uh injury which uh which ha- doesn't actually affect their higher cognitive abilities. So locked-in individuals are entirely aware of everything going on around them. So they don't fall into the disorders of consciousness then, right? No. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so healthy individuals and locked-in individuals uh, are not disordered in their conscious consciousness. Interesting. So going back to your research, so what have you found so far in... Uh with using these EEG caps on these uh, patients? So we, one, of our, one of the main things that we're trying to find is whether these patients have higher order conceptual abilities as far as language goes. So does a patient's brain understand um, that the man drove to work in his potato is, is not a, a congruent sentence? Or do they understand that uh, the words potato, elephant are very unlikely to go together in a sentence and therefore make up an incongruent word pair? Uh, so far, it's been very difficult to find a patient who displays this level of semantic processing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't exist. Uh, it's just very difficult to find on a single subject level. So most science... Uh, looks at group-level analyses for a a variety of really important reasons. We need to get large samples that generalize to the population. We need to smooth out noise in the data by grouping everybody together, and we want to make sure that the effect we're seeing is, is actually there across a large number of people. But with patients, uh, with disorders of consciousness or, or any patient with a with uh, in a brain injury, for example, you can't do group-level analyses. You can't group them together. Their brain injuries are never the same. 
And for that reason, you can't group them together and treat them like they are. So you, do you use um, patients who are in the comatose, vegetative, and mi minimally conscious state in your research? Do you use all three? I have seen one comatose patient, and um, the current paradigm that I'm using, I've seen uh, 16 vegetative state and minimally conscious state patients. There's, there's a mix. And also, last thing, um, could you, not last thing, but from me for now, um, <laughs> could you tell us how you, like, how do you present them with this paradigm? How are you presenting these word pairs to these patients? Ah, uh, yes. So because they uh, will not always track things, we can't do visual experiments a lot of the time. And so we'll plug in headphones, and all of the information that they're given, all of the sentences or word pairs, are auditory uh, so they, unfortunately, have to listen to my voice for, like, 16 minutes. <laughs> Apologies to the listeners. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, did you want to say? Um, you mentioned before we started talking on live air that you had some interesting um, results from a patient, and I really would like you to talk about it on air. Absolutely. So... So I mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago that this higher-level conceptual uh, level of language processing has been really hard to achieve in these patients. However, we have witnessed a lower-level perceptual uh, effect that is evident in a subset of these patients. And basically, it's just saying that some of these patients are able, their brain is able to distinguish between speech and noise, in the same way, so a very similar pattern of activation that healthy individuals are. Um, so one of the reasons that we believe going forward that this perceptual effect, this speech versus noise contrast, might actually have prognostic or even diagnostic value is that one of our patients who had a very similar pattern of activation to our healthy uh, individuals ended up recovering two weeks after we, we tested him. And um, we, we went back uh, six months after their recovery. And, and this time by recovery, I mean that the, the patient was able to talk again. Uh, they were no longer considered vegetative, though they were still severely brain impaired. Uh, they are solving simple math problems. They're eating by themselves, uh, assisted walking. And from my understanding, they are improving constantly. And so I thought it would be really neat and really fun to, to give this patient a memory task. And uh, so that, that's exactly what we did. We gave this patient a, a forced choice memory task where on one side of the screen, you would see uh, an object or a face that you've never seen before. Um, and then on the other side of the screen, you would see one of our researchers that has interacted with the patient uh, when they were considered vegetative. Or uh, in our object block, you would see an object that uh, was used during the behavioral diagnosis. And basically what we found is, is that this patient was able to remember most of the things, uh, most of the faces and most of the objects. So we're currently writing this up. That is crazy. I just had to pop that in there. Like, that is really cool. Yeah. So these patients are in a vegetative state, and 
all they can do is they're I mean generally is that they're just lying there and they can track objects with their eyes and stuff like that in vegetative state right sometimes it okay. depends on the severity of their injury but and yes. and then you just found that in this one patient uh they were able to remember who they interacted with and that's really cool and like how much could they remember so uh on some of the face faces that they were shown uh when my face in particular came up they remembered um that i had a monotonous voice <laughs> that uh, I had put on this swim cap of electrodes in the past. And they even remembered specifics about the uh, language paradigm I use, which is word pairs. So they said certain things like cat, dog, and knife, fork. Um, but I think most astounding was on one of the faces that they said that they remembered when asked for specific details uh, they were able to recall the specific name of that person when asked for uh, how, when asked how confident they were in that recollection. That's so amazing. So this uh, this test that they were given initially when they were still in the vegetative um, state, almost you could it could almost be used maybe potentially in the future as a predictor of whether or not the patient is ever going to wake up or um, is maybe moving in that direction. Exactly, and and so. F- for that reason, we think that hopefully this low-level automatic perceptual contrast between speech and noise, while it doesn't necessarily indicate conscious awareness, um, it might have prognostic value. It, it might tell us that the patient is going to recover at least to some extent, even if that just means a better score on their clinical diagnosis or a progression into uh, a healthier state, like minimally conscious. So can you use this memory paradigm? Um, do, you, are, do you plan on using it in patients who you're not even working with? Maybe you can get doctors to contact you when someone recovers to a state where they can talk and communicate. And would you then be able to use that memory paradigm to see if um, that, oh, that sort of memory awareness was still present in, in those patients as well? Uh, yes and no. So, yes, because uh, obviously determining if the patient had objective empirical memory from the duration of their injury is very important, and that is definitely something that we could do in the future if it were to happen again, that we were to, uh, to, to be given this rare opportunity of witnessing a patient recover. No, because, um, it, it, because it's so rare. Uh, this happened within the confines of our lab, and because because of that, we were able to sort of control a lot of the variables that went into this memory design. Um, it's it's exceedingly difficult to determine uh, the faces or the objects that a patient has only ever seen when they were uh, in their in their state in their vegetative or minimally conscious state, uh, and to rule out others that they may have gotten uh, interaction with after their recovery, or that someone may have even told them about. Or maybe they even had before their, their accident. So you knew that the grad students interacting with this patient had never met them before, and you 
eliminate them from being needing them after. That's you, right. You kept them away, and, and the person doing the memory test was actually a new person and not mm -hmm. um, not you, for example. Exactly, yeah. Unfortunately, I could not be there to witness some of the things that this patient was saying because I my face was in the experiment. That's, that's so amazing to me. I'm still so blown away by that. Like, I mean, this has so many implications for how people... Um, have to interact with, you know, if they're family members of someone who's in a vegetative state, like, I mean, I know it's just in one patient, but it's still pretty interesting that they were able to recall what was going on around them when they, when people probably assumed that they had no idea that anything was even happening. Yeah, so, absolutely. Huge implications. Mm -hmm. Really cool. So um, what are the next steps for your research project right now? Right. So because this rare recovery occurred, uh, we think that maybe there's prognostic uh, criteria to this low-level speech versus noise contrast. Unfortunately, we can't say that for sure. It's a, it's a very rare thing. Uh, if all of our patients were to recover immediately after having this perceptual effect, that would be wonderful. Uh, not only for our research, but for the families, obviously. Um, but that's uh, unfortunately not the case. So... The next step is to do a follow-up visit with these patients, reconduct the clinical assessment, uh, do a little bit more neuroimaging with the same paradigm, and to see if they've progressed uh, on the coma recovery scale or um, if their pattern of EEG activity more so reflects that of a healthy individual or maybe even if they have progressed so much that they get this conceptual effect, this higher-order conceptual effect. Super cool. Um, and what about the next steps for you? What are you doing after you defend your master's thesis? Uh, after I defend my master's thesis, I will have to use August to write up a lot of the data that <laughs> I'm talking about today, uh, as well as move on to do my Ph.D., Probably at McGill, it's looking like. That's so awesome. Really exciting. Do you know what your project is going to be? In McGill? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful level of uncertainty. <laughs> I'll, I'll, say, I'll say that for sure. You'll have time to figure it out. That's Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on air to talk to us. Thanks um, for having me. This has been great. Thank you all for listening to Gradcast. And we'll That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, Email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio. And look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com. And it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>